Welcome to episode 69 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. If you are a Christian Humanist Radio Network listener, you may know that we are in the middle of this year's big network crossover, which is on the classic Universal Monster movies. This episode of the CFP will cover Universal's 1943 version of The Phantom of the Opera, and with me today, I have network member Josh Altman, chauffeur of Before They Were Live. Hi, Josh. Hello. Glad to be here. Thanks. Great to have you. And I also have a very special treat for any longtime CFP listeners, uh, our intrepid intern, Elizabeth Brimner, who is responsible for making all of us sound a little less like idiots, uh, is our third panelist here today. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey, guys. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, being on today, guys. So... A little background about the Phantom story, um, the original story, since there are many iterations of this, is published in 1910 by a French author, Gaston Larue. He serializes it, um, as is common in that period, and there are many, many, many uh, movie and stage versions that follow after. There are three Universal film versions alone, one in 1925, one in 1943, which we will talk about today, another in 1962, and then the biggest uh, version that most of you know after that is probably the 1986 stage musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber, which I'm sure we'll talk about at least a bit. After that, there is a 1990, uh, I believe it's British, television miniseries adaptation. And then there is the most recent uh, film adaptation of the musical. And I'm sorry, I don't have a year in front of me for that one. Do you guys know what year the most recent movie came out? Is it like 2011 or something like that? I'm not entirely sure. That might be a little bit too soon. That, uh, I, I don't know, I'm old enough that I have lost all sense of movie release time. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll make that correction in the show notes, but there has been a more recent film version. So, because there have been all of those versions, there are some things that kind of stay constant about the Phantom story, and some things that change. So I'm going to hit the high notes of a couple of things you can see in every Phantom story, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into some of our opinions about them. So when you're talking about the Phantom of the Opera, there are a few things that you know you're going to get. You're going to get a Phantom who lives 
below an opera house in some sort of lair which may or may not contain water. You're going to get Christine the Ingenue, who is in some stage of um, learning to sing or starting to sing opera and get famous. You're going to get uh, another guy, or perhaps two other guys, uh, who are competing for Christine's affections in some way, and at some point a chandelier is going to fall onto the ground. Those are kind of the standard pieces of the plot. They're arranged in a lot of different ways, and there are some changes that, uh, that complicate things that we'll get to once we start talking about the 43 film. But since we have mentioned that there are sort of lots of versions of this floating around, I wanted to throw to the panel. Tell me a little bit about your experiences with this story generally, um, when you learned about it, what you like about it, and if you have a favorite or perhaps a least favorite version of uh, the Phantom story. Elizabeth, go first. Um, so I've been exposed to this story ever since I can remember. Um, my dad was a huge musical fan and opera and, you know, kind of just that general area. And so I, I've been listening to the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical for, I, I don't know how many years at this point. Um, but at one point I realized that it was actually based on a book and I just kind of randomly picked the book up and read it and thought it was awesome. So, I mean, since then I've just kind of been... I'm not not obsessed with the story. I mean, I probably went through a period of teenage obsession with the story, as many people do with stories like this. Um, but I don't know. It's just been a it's it's been a story that I've really enjoyed. I've read it a couple times since then, and um, watched the more recent film version several times as well. Um, but I, I can't remember when the first time I heard it was. Do you have a favorite version? Um, I think it would be I think it would be the book at this point. I mean, the musical is is wonderful, but I don't know. There's something about the book that's sort of interesting and oddly surreal that I, I really do enjoy. Cool. Thanks for sharing that, Josh. How about you? I'm actually coming into this quite ignorant, so I didn't know there was anything before Andrew Lloyd Webber. I was familiar with that, but I. Yeah, I just I never had looked into it or thought about it or anything. Um, I have seen the most recent film adaptation, but I I think in that one they use a lot of his music. Is that right? It's very blurry in my head. Yeah, it's it's mostly um, an appropriation of the Weber rather than an appropriation of of any of the earlier films um, from from what I remember. Yeah, that's what I remember too. I think I've only seen it once, but so. Yeah, I'm I'm not coming in as a huge Phantom fan, but um yeah, I so I would say I my my favorite is probably this one that we just watched because it's the only other one that I've seen and I really enjoyed it. Cool. Well, I'm I'm glad you liked it uh, and I'm looking forward to talking more about it. So, um as far as my experience with Phantom goes, um I my mom is a big old movie buff. Um she is actually, she doesn't listen to our podcast a ton, but when I told her that this year's crossover series was on Universal Monster Movies, like, she's ready to download all of them, even though she doesn't know any of the people besides me. She's super psyched. Uh, so I grew up on these Universal Monster Movies. I have seen 
most of them, um, though I hadn't seen the 1943 before we recorded this episode. Um, I grew up watching the 1925 um, with Lon Chaney, which is probably my favorite version. Um, And uh, even though this might start a fight right now, um, though I am a big Broadway nerd and have been since I was an early teenager, um, I tend to think that there are two kinds of Broadway nerds in the world. You have your Stephen Sondheim people and your Andrew Lloyd Webber people, and uh, to mix Broadway metaphors, it's like a Sharks and Jets situation, and those people do not get along. I guess Sharks and Jets kind of still counts as a Sondheim metaphor, right? Um, we're going to make it count. So anyway, um, I don't like Weber. I think he is not focused enough on substance and focused too much on spectacle. Um, While, yes, there should be spectacle in Phantom of the Opera, um, I I think he he takes advantage of the situation. So um, I I much prefer the straight film versions of the story. Um, And the book is is quite good. uh, so I agree with Elizabeth there, but I'm I'm not uh, not super sold um, on the musical, though there are some really good um, Broadway performances, particularly um, Sarah Brightman as Christine in whatever year she was in it. So um, if you guys want to fight with me later about Andrew Lloyd Webber, you certainly can. I'm not enough of a musical buff to to take up any arms on <laughs> on these sorts of things. So, okay. Um, now, if you talk bad about Lin Manuel Miranda, then I might have to get involved. I mean, well, I'm opinionated, but I'm not a moron. Um, no, Lin is <laughs> Lin is wonderful. Um, and actually, speaking of uh, him and Sondheim, um, yesterday uh, it's. We're recording this on October 21st, so yesterday the 20th, the New York Times um, ran a really beautiful um, interview where Miranda interviews Sondheim. So um, if any of you listening to this are fans of Lynn or fans of Sondheim or fans of musicals in general, um, you should read that. We'll stick a link to that in the show notes, too. But back to the subject at hand... um, Now that we've talked a little bit about um, some of the background to the story and some of the versions of uh, films and musicals, I found a really interesting book that discusses the 1943 film. Um, It's called Phantom Ladies, Hollywood Horror and the Homefront by Tim Snelson. Um, And I posted a a couple of quotations here in our planning document, Uh, so I'm going to just ask the panel how they feel about Snelson's argument. So he quotes uh, from the August 1943 issue of a Hollywood industry magazine called Film Daily, and uh, Film Daily says that there's this new trend in 1943 of hybrid genre movies because... um, The demographics of the United States are, of course, really changing at that time in terms of who is viewing entertainment, because we're smack in the middle of U.S. involvement in World War II, and uh, there are a lot more women in movie audiences than there were in, uh, in previous years. So movie studios want to 
sort of crack the interests of the demographic and figure out how to appeal to women. So Universal markets this version of Phantom of the Opera as having, quote, femme appeal and, quote, combining splendor, terror, and musical drama. So what do you guys think about those descriptions? Uh, do you think they accurately describe um, kind of the parts that make up this version of the film? Um, uh, is it more splendor and musical drama than terror? How, how scary is this monster movie? And do you see the femme appeal to it, whatever, um, whatever that means? Elizabeth, since, since you have a lot of experience with, um, with other versions of this, what did you think about the 1943? Is that an accurate description? I think it was actually, yeah. I was, I was actually really surprised about how they, they depicted the relationships between Christine and the three different men in the movie. Um, it, it wasn't as, as scary as the Weber version, which isn't all that scary in the first place to me, at least. Um, but she had a lot more agency, and it was, it, it also showed that whole, that, that, that struggle, um, that I'm sure many women were or had been dealing with at this time about, you know, choosing, you know, relationship over career and, you know, how that would be kind of a new struggle at this time. So I, I definitely agree. It was, it was pleasantly surprising that way. Yes, that's a, that's a great point. Um, Josh, what did you think? Does this film, um, how, how scary is it? Is it a horror film? Can you see that it was um, meant to appeal to a kind of more feminine sensibility? Well, I, I don't know about that. The Maybe. The very small um, sample size that I have from my house, I really enjoyed it, but my wife didn't at all. So, um, yeah, maybe maybe not the femme appeal there. But um, as far as scariness, I didn't find it at all scary or even... I, I didn't even find it that suspenseful. Like, even... I know some of the, like, the chase scenes and stuff were, were maybe meant to be suspenseful, but... I just really didn't get a sense that they were all that suspenseful. And then I, yeah, as far as just the Phantom's motives, I don't know if it's supposed to make him more or less scary that you don't really know what exactly his motives are. But I found that actually to be one part of the movie that I that I did not enjoy very much was um, at one point uh, he says uh, during... He goes to see Christine's tutor, and uh, he starts. The tutor starts kind of ribbing him a bit about the fact that he's never going to win Christine's heart. And he says, "We agreed never to discuss my motives." And I feel like that's pretty true. Like for the movie, like they just don't discuss his motives of what he's doing or or why he's doing it. And so I don't know if that's supposed to make him more terrifying or less, but it that that part did not work for me really. So there's a there's a reason for that that I want to get to, but um, before we do, I want to circle back. Um, did your wife tell you specific reasons about why she didn't like the film? She didn't. She just, uh, yeah, she just didn't care for it. I don't know. She didn't. She didn't really elaborate, and I didn't really ask her. It was we watched it kind of late at night, so I think she slept through parts of it. So yeah. All right. That's uh, that's fair. <laughs> I've definitely fallen asleep during some uh, some late night uh, movie watches too. So, um, in terms of the Phantom's motives, um, I kind of cringed a little bit when I heard that um, 
that line. It, it seemed a, a little on the nose, um, but I, I did some background research. And um, so what's actually really interesting about the way this film deals with the relationship between Christine and Eric is, um, so it tells us that, um, that there's this song that Eric likes to play, um, a, a European lullaby that he learned um, in his home country, and then later um, Christine knows the same song. And so we are supposed to know, though the film is not explicit about it, that them knowing the same song from the same country combined with him um, risking everything to support her monetarily means that uh, he's her father and he gave her up when she was a baby and uh, that that's sort of the nature of his motivation and their relationship but the film doesn't push this because their relationship is so romantic in the 1925 version that um, Universal thought that filmgoers to the 43 version would think that this relationship was incestuous if they kind of telegraphed that he was her father so so that's why I think they shoehorn that really awkward statement in there yeah, the other interesting thing I saw on that was um, I read the New York Times review of this movie, like the from 1943 when it came out, and it was very explicit that he was her father within the review, which I I found odd. I don't know if the reviewer saw like a pre-screening version or like got briefed somehow or just was a more careful film watcher than I was, but I did not pick up on any of that at all. I know it's in the... Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, I know anyone who had um, probably uh, read the book at one point, it's it's probably a little bit more clear because there, there are more, uh, there, there are hints in this. Um, you know, her in the book, her father's a violinist um, from that area. It talks about him and um, uh, lullabies that he would sing to her um, more explicitly there. So I think that's what really uh, keyed it off for me, that uh, he was... Her father was that there were there were specific tells from from the book, which now people wouldn't necessarily catch up on because the book has you know been out for much longer and uh, is not considered necessarily a general classic or anything like that. Yeah, I, I think that's a um, that's a good point. I was remembering things um, from the book when I was watching the film, uh, even though it's, it's been many years, probably high school since I read the book, but the, the place that the book really came back for me, um, and, and also the, the place that I, if I saw the sort of, we're going to appeal to women angle in this film, um, it was in the, the visuals and the technicolor and the way that the technicolor was used to create, um, sort of the the splendor of um, of the opera house. We have um, I didn't count the minutes, but it's it's got to be like probably pretty close to five, a really long time, um, where we get these super high um, crane shots of the opera house at the beginning of the film. Um, we don't get a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of time spent si setting up um, the visual world of the performance before we get anything about people um, and relationships. And the film really wants us to know that this is a sort of grand, opulent space 
um, where probably grand, opulent, fancy um, things are going to happen. And the end of the longest crane shot at the beginning is, of course, a super uh, sweeping close-up on the chandelier um, that's going to meet a bad fate later in the film. What did you guys think about um, about the visuals and and the Technicolor um, being a feature of this film? How did it um, lend to the sort of environment of the film for you? That part, I felt they did really well. And that was actually what I most enjoyed about the movie, I think, was the visuals and the art direction. The colors all really stood out to me. Those camera shots, there, there were several camera shots, but the one you're talking about at the beginning... Um, I found very impressive and uh, there's a few more tracking shots later on where they, they kind of follow the scene without, um, without taking a, a cut or an edit. And I, I'm always fascinated by those in movies. And so uh, I think in this, in that essence of, of catching, capturing splendor in that way, I feel like they did a really good job. And that's where that, that term of splendor is much more accurate than earlier when we were talking about terror. Elizabeth, what about you? What do you think about the visuals of the film? I would agree. I actually, I really enjoyed them. It was it was kind of fun to uh, pick out the little spots where you could tell that the uh, more recent film had very clearly been inspired by this film. Um, about the the Technicolor, it was actually a little bit jarring to me within everything, just because this this movie seemed like one that you know could so easily have been black and white. But I think that's also you know. I, I think that's just a, a personal thing that, you know, it would have been, I think it would have been interesting to see how it would have affected the tone of the movie if it had been a little less bright and cheerful at times, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I, I think the, um, especially for um, for us who have grown up um, either equal parts in the 20th and 21st centuries or mostly in the 21st century, um, I think that Technicolor can be a little uncanny. Um, it, it feels sometimes a little too bright, um, which is the, the nature of, of the technique, I think. Um, so I, I think you're right to point that out. Um, and before we move on, since uh, Josh mentioned the number of tracking shots um, in the film, and that is one of my favorite things um, about the film, the way the tracking shots are sort of used to tie um, different scenes and different parts of the movie together. I mentioned the first big one with the with the chandelier. Um, the next one after that that stands out and sort of loops back to that scene visually is um, after Eric gets um, disfigured by the acid in the um, in the music distributor music printer's office um and is is trying to run away he sees the manhole cover over the sewer and the design on the manhole cover is um a, a pretty direct echo of the beads in the chandelier in the beginning that the sort of swirls are the same and you go um from the manhole cover down in this there may be one edit in it but i don't think there's more than that this long shot um, that sort of ties those shapes together. So I, I do think, um, while it's not terribly scary as a horror movie, it does um, 
create these visuals that pull you along in the plot and and tie the scenes together really nicely. Yeah, I didn't even catch that um, that that the shapes were the same with the manhole cover and the and the chandelier. But yeah, that's lovely. That's something I'll have to watch for the next time I watch this one. Yeah, I, I thought it was really neat. It's clear that they they took a lot of care. Um, to to pull those visuals together. Uh, also, the the sort of slanted spiral staircase in Eric's atelier is uh, is very like the stairs that go down into the sewer too. There's a lot of like sharp angles um, and and spirals there. Okay, but uh, enough on uh, how much I love the the scenery in this movie. Uh, so Elizabeth alluded earlier to um, some some kind of progressive, or at least progressive for the time period, uh, gender roles in terms of Christine's relationships. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the way the film deals with gender. There's a, There are a lot of things going on here. Um, we have uh, Christine and Carlotta, the sort of ingenue and uh, Grand Dame of the Opera and, and their relationship. We have um, Christine and Eric and her two other suitors. Lots of gender stuff going on here. Uh, Josh, what did you think was interesting about the film's portrayal of gender? Well, I saw a couple things that I thought might be interesting for our discussion, but um, one was just the, the way that they kind of portrayed this idea that it's just obvious that if you are in love with someone or obsessed with someone that it would it would cause you to do things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise do and particularly uh, immoral things and you see that in a couple scenes one was the scene where um uh the sorry i forget his name the detective brings in the a, a bust of christine that he's found in eric's eric's room and uh and it's it's revealed that uh, Anatole actually created the bust to begin with as a gift, but then uh, Eric stole it out of his room, and they're they're looking for for reasons or connections, and he's like, well, it's it's obvious, right? And the inspector says, well, you know, I can't, as an inspector, I have to look and see, you know, for facts. I can't just look and see with things that seem obvious. And he says, yes, but as a man, isn't it obvious? And it's just. I don't know. I just it's just struck me as odd. But then they do the same sort of thing again later. Um, after um, you have to remind me of her name, who's poisoned in the in the during the opera. Carlotta Biancaroli. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I can't, I'm not going to try and pronounce that. Um, but she's drugged, and then she's accusing Antoli of being the suspect. And again, it's it's just so obvious that he would do it because he's in love with Christine, and he wants her to be the lead. And yeah, mostly I think mostly just based on on her looks and her beauty, and not necessarily on on anything else in either, either of those scenes. I don't know if if that struck you guys in any particular way that you'd want to comment on or not. I definitely thought that bust was pretty creepy. Like, they they seem to be really willing to just assume that we all live in this world where busts of women, like, not, like, dead historical people, but, like, just people that you know. Like, that's a thing that you have hanging around. It's pretty weird. Uh, and, and they're also 
like you're saying, was this assumption that, like, obviously men are going to be the aggressors and go after women because women are so, you know, lovely or beautiful or whatever. But there was this assumption of, like, yes, men are pursuers and can do these sort of desperate things, and that's accepted. Do you have anything to add on that point, Elizabeth? Um, well, yeah, I would definitely agree with all that, although I, I still think it's interesting that in in this version, more than pretty much any other version that I've read, actually, Christine was still allowed to, in a sense, be her own aggressor, if that makes sense. Uh, she, she, would, uh, she was still able to uh, chase after some things herself, whereas in a lot of the other versions, she seems to kind of be passively following, you know, uh, the, the male leads, I guess. Yeah, that's that's definitely true about this film. Um, I'm glad you brought that up, and I I think that um, her, the way that she plays her male suitors off of each other, and sort of the way that she is knowledgeable of the fact that she's playing a game, um, is the way in which this is um, this is most obviously a World War Two film. Um, this is most obviously influenced by um, the changing roles of women and the sort of um, kind of post-screwball comedy of the 30s um, femininity because her uh, her two suitors, I'm going to stop calling them that and actually look up their names, uh, Anatole and Detective, Detective Dubert. So Anatole and Dubert, um, like, pretty much are doing everything but an Abbott and Costello routine um, by the time we get to the end of the film. Uh, and and Christine, um, they're, they're standing at the end of the movie fighting over her and arguing who gets to take her out to dinner. Um, and she says, you know, I'm, I'm going to go um, be a singer and, and soak up the adulation of all these people who've just seen me be great at the opera and uh and she goes and does that and chooses her career and they um sort of laughingly and partly sheepishly um have dinner with one another uh because they've they've both been spurned by her in favor of her career so i mean that i i don't think that could have happened even even 10 years before Definitely not, and also I think I, I don't know that it could happen even even today, judging by what we what we've uh, seen with the the more uh, well known versions, at least. Say more about that. Um, in a sense, it almost seems like the it, it, just judging off of off of these versions for now, uh, we've we've almost regressed in that. Um, in in the in the book she also has she has much more of her own um own free will her own person um than in in what we've got now and i i'm not sure what that is if it's just a changing idea of what women want from a movie reacting against that i i'm not entirely sure if i have a reason why just judging from what i've seen though i i don't i don't really see many movies coming out that have you know, even hints of this that, that become popular rom-coms or anything like that, or romantic thrillers or, or whatever. 
Interesting. Um, someone should should write a paper about uh, Phantom of the Opera and, and post-feminist reactions, maybe. Josh, every time I record with you, we throw out a bunch of paper ideas that people should write. So let, uh, I guess we're just continuing that tradition. That's right. It's a good tradition. Listen to us and get ideas for papers. There you go. So we talked about sort of love triangle stuff. Um, what about the relationship between um, Christine and Carlotta? Do you guys have, have thoughts on that, the sort of um, female singing strength competition? Um, well, from what I know, it is not entirely untrue to how those things actually go. Um, my aunt was, uh, she went to um, a school for, for music and art, and she's told me about how between the, the women at the school, there was a much fiercer kind of bloodthirsty competition than there was between the men, and I, I don't know exactly why that uh, necessarily would have to hold up, except that it's 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 just interesting that that the the women in in these roles feel like they have more of a need to set themselves above the the, the other women there and to make sure that you know their their position is secure. Um, whereas the the men often seem to feel that they were already more secure um, in in what they were doing. That, that's a, a really interesting point. Um, thanks for thanks for sharing that with us. I, I was actually struck um, in in this version at what a what a small role the Carlotta character has because um, I think in the um, in the twenty five and also um, in in later versions she's much more of a character um, and I, and I think that she gets. Um, in some cases almost literally uh, thrown out of the way here in the story um, because so much of this film is preoccupied with having us be sympathetic for Eric um, and and setting us up to be um, to, to sort of view him as the protagonist of the story um, certainly much more than um, Maybe not more than the book, definitely more than um, the 25 version and what I have read about the 62, um, the 62 version. Interestingly, um, this film is the first version of the story in which um, Eric does not begin the film deformed. We see him... Um, sort of begin able-bodied and then um, through horrible um, means his music gets stolen um, and then injuries is literally added to insult. Um, what do you guys think that um, the, the fact that we sort of see him become the phantom does for where our sympathies lie? Well, I was going to say related to that and related to what Elizabeth said with... Um, with him is uh, that he seems to really he feels like he has to push Christine forward like he, he can he needs to you know uh, remove her rivals and you know threaten and coerce you know in order to get her a position and I wonder if that's similar to what you were just saying Elizabeth with 
you know, maybe the men feel more secure in their place and, you know, the women have to fight for it. I don't know, but it, I just found it very odd that as much as he's supposed to be believing in her and believing in her talent, that he's not letting her talent stand on its own. He has to, he has to fight for her in very bizarre and creepy ways. Sorry, that didn't really answer your question, but I just thought it was a little related. (laughs) No, it is, it is relevant. And I think, um, I think, too, there's this idea, this sort of notion that we keep hearing over and over um, from the opera manager and from, I think Anatole says it, too. Um, these people, like, keep telling Christine and also tell Eric um, about his relationship with Christine that when you're involved with the opera, you can have a career or you can have relationships, but you can't really have both. So I I think that he sort of chooses her career over his relationships um, in in order to support her. But definitely we we keep hearing over and over, like, you'll sing and it'll be great, but stop worrying about all these suitors and stop worrying about all these people. Um, Right. And as you said, then that is the choice she makes in the end. She She chooses her career over relationships also. So in some ways, there's, I don't, like, as far as that sympathy for Eric, I, I think that is one of the major pushes or major themes that come out in the film is if you, you know, pursue your art or whatever it is that you're pursuing to, to its fullest, even above and beyond relationships, and that's seen as a good thing. Like, the, the Phantom himself isn't necessarily seen as a good thing, but, you know, she makes the same choice in the end not to... Not to the same extreme where she's killing people, but you know she chooses the the art over the relationships. And even like uh, I was going to get this to this later, but maybe it makes more sense here. Like uh, Anatole even kind of brushes over Eric's sins and says, um, "Sorry, I wrote it down. Let me see where it is. Oh, his suffering and madness will be forgotten, but his music, his concerto, will remain. Like basically, it doesn't matter. Like all the." All that he did doesn't matter because he created this amazing piece of piece of art, and that will live on. You made a, a really good point about um, this film's sort of uh, reverence of of art. Um, I, I want to um, use that opportunity to springboard to the next um, big point in our discussion, since we already talked about um, the role of gender in the film. Now I want to talk about where faith lives in the film, if anywhere. Um, I think part of the place it lives is definitely the faith that the characters have in, in the power of art to, um, to sustain people and to put beauty out into the world. Um, there is one sort of really strong statement about faith in connection to music. Later in the film, the Phantom is talking about his lair in the sewers below the opera house and describes it thusly. Life here is like a resurrection. The music comes down here and the darkness distills it, cleanses it of the pain that made it. Um, I thought that was really interesting because what it's saying about the nature of art is that you need darkness, you need sadness, um, you need pain to make art, 
and the pain distills the art, makes it better, makes it purer, um, clearer, to go with the metaphor. Um, that that certainly seems to, to track for Eric. Um, I'm not sure if it if it tracks for the other um, characters in the film, though. Um, do you guys have thoughts about that quote or other thoughts about the role of faith in the film? Elizabeth, what about you? Um, well, the first thing I think of is that in, I guess I'm going to go back to the book again a little bit. In the book, um, Christine is, um, is unable to sing as well after her father's died and like that, that pain has has limited her her um her vocal ability and I, I I don't see that translated as much into this version as I have in other versions I don't know if um but with that quote it would it would it would have kind of made sense to have you know have, to have alluded to something you know something painful in her existence that has you know made her unable to sing until the phantom or whoever comes along and helps her um but another thing that I that goes along with the whole the, the religion theme. It, sometimes it almost seems like the the opera house itself is being portrayed as a, a parallel to a cathedral or something, and you know how people have to choose just choose the life of the opera over even over uh, personal relationships, and how you know someone outside of the opera can't can't understand and can't really join in your life if, if they're, you know, if they're, if they're unable to understand that connection that you have. Um, you can't serve within. two masters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was, I, there were just parallels like that that were kind of scattered throughout that, that made me think of this theme. That, that's a cool, uh, a cool point about the cathedral. I, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't thought about that, but I think you're right. I think the theme is, is definitely there. Um, Josh, what about you? Yeah, I hadn't caught on to the cathedral thing either, but I, I I really like that and I think it goes along with I did think of the of Christ's words in, in Matthew six twenty four of which you just alluded to, no one can serve two masters. Um, as Christine gets that advice um, several times, um, between choosing an operatic career and a normal life and um, during her tutoring session, it's music is first, music is everything. Um, and then even Eric is dismissed from the opera because he can no longer uh, reach perfection with his his fingers um, are not being able to play as well as they used to be able to. And it's this idea that he'll just accept that because, you know, the, the art is greater or whatever. And so, you know, um, yeah, the, that sacrifice just has to be made. So I think there's definitely some of those themes that come out. So what what about the fact that I guess since we're since we're following this um, this Bible verse, what about the nature of the master that Christine chooses? Um, does the fact that she seems to be focused on worldly acclaim and and financial success kind of d- dilute this point, or uh, or not, or something else? What do you think about that? Well, I think if you take what Elizabeth to see it positively, if you look, as Elizabeth said, and this is uh, uh, some sort of parallel to a cathedral, then I think then the idea that that you give everything for the, the master of, 
you know, if God, if God is the master and, and we're his people and, you know, we meet in his church and, and those sorts of things, then it could be a very positive message. I think negatively, um, if you looked at it as worldly and as, you know, this is just a worldly thing that is, it's, it's a replacement for the true thing, then, then yeah, it would, I guess it just makes you ponder the message a little bit in that way. Like, well, what is really worth pursuing? What will really last? Uh, they seem to make the argument that that the art will last forever, um, which brings up some some interesting ideas about you know the connecting the the person to the art and does it matter? And you know, does the does the mor- the morals or the morality of the person who did something connect to to the art that they make. I, I think that's a, a particularly good question in light of what happens to the Phantom, to Eric, at the end of this um, this film. In some later versions, um, when the the chandelier comes down, um, you don't see the Phantom under it. He has disappeared. Um, he has lived to haunt another day, and, and sort of the, the specter of the opera house continues. Uh, not so in this uh, in this version, where it's really heavily implied that he is crushed under the rubble of the collapsed um, lair. You see his mask sort of fallen off in front of it, and um, the, the film seems like it wants us to think that he has um, sacrificed himself and given all of our talk about um, these verses in Matthew and and cathedral metaphors, um, I think my my natural next question is, uh, is this phantom um, a Christ figure? Are are we meant to take him that way? I think that makes sense to me. I mean, throughout, he's obviously heavily heavily pushed by his music but there's also that that love for his daughter that he can't even really express and she can't show back to him and so i think relationally it's sort of a a warped a warped uh metaphor for for christ and i think that there are easily parallels what do you think josh well i had not given a lot of thought this is this is a very interesting discussion on on this, and I had, I had not thought about the movie in this way at all, so I'm still thinking about it. I, I feel like uh, warped would be a good word for it uh, that you just used there, Elizabeth. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what how you deal with the murders and things uh, and just the general creepiness of him, but I do understand the argument that he could be seen as a Christ figure, so I don't know. Um, I have to keep thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely the reason that I pose that as a question is is because I'm I'm not sure either. I mean, I he he maybe wants to be, but I I you certainly can't um, discount um, discount those murders. Um, I I read an article. I will try to find it again and put it in the show notes. Um, that said that the the sort of complicated Christ figure echoes start because of the poisoned cup um, when when Biancaroli um, is is poisoned um, someone tells her they use the phrase drink the cup and um, 
and the the writer of the article that I saw um, was was making a a Last Supper metaphor there. Um, it it seemed a little a little shaky to me, um, but but obviously other other people other than us are are seeing kind of strange quasi religious echoes uh, here, I guess. But I'm with you, Josh. I'm not. I'm not sure it can totally work um, as a metaphor because he he kills people and he's like really. Uh, it it seems like he not just kills people, but like is kind of excited about killing people because of what it will do for Christine. So I'm I'm not sure I can can go all the way there. Uh, yeah, although I guess I'm I'm just thinking this through. This is really interesting to me and fascinating. Um, you know, when he first gets his scar, um, he kind of goes nuts inside the music publishing house um, because they're not honoring the actual art of the music, right? It's all about who you know and whatever. And he kind of, I mean, he doesn't exactly turn tables or anything over, but, you know, you could kind of see some of the, you know, some of the rage that starts there um, coming from a, a sense of these people are commercializing something that shouldn't be commercialized. Ooh, that's interesting. That is a really interesting point. Um, yeah, I I hadn't really thought as much about the connection between um, fame and kind of the, the purity of the art there. Um, I mean, it, it kind of seems like ultimately in that scene, um, his motives are pretty diametrically opposed to what Christine's motives end up being at the end of the film, um, because he he's about the fact that like this is good art, and he wants the art to stand on its own um, as far as being performed in front of people, and the the people in the music publishing house are you know this isn't written by a famous person so essentially we can steal it and and use it for ourselves that's that's really interesting uh well before we get into the final segment of the show um do you guys have anything else to say about uh faith in the film or gender in the film or anything that we haven't covered yet that you'd like to cover um, I'll just say this because it relates a little bit to my last part, my passing on. And if we don't touch on it on the show, then it might my passing on will seem kind of out of place. But I was wondering just, you know, recently there's been a lot of uh, talk about the institutional silence on uh, abusive women. And like it's just been a lot in the news and, and everything recently. And um, I was wondering, you know, back when... Uh, Again, I'm going to mess up her name. Bien, Bien Caroli, is that her last name, uh, is poisoned. And she's, you know, she's making her accusations. And the, the guy in the opera house says, your career is bound to the Paris opera, opera. Whatever scandal injures us or any member of the company will injure you as well. Basically telling her, I mean, they don't know who did it, but they're, they're saying, you know, you, you've just got to be silent about this and you've got to be quiet about it. And so... Yeah, I didn't. I don't know if you guys had any comments on that. I mean, I I think it was a a pretty common attitude of the period, um, not just for women. I mean, definitely for women because you know in the forties you're you're talking about um, an an era where 
Um, in a lot of places, um, it was really hard for women to do things like get divorced. Um, definitely, you've got several decades um, before something like spousal rape um, is, is made illegal. Um, so I, I do think that that had a gendered dimension. But I, I would also think that especially um, during wartime, um, there was a, a kind of, you know, we're all in this together, um, work for the greater good and, and don't worry as much about yourself kind of general cultural attitude. Um, not, not to diminish the fact that, you know, that, that statement is explicitly made to a woman, um, because I, I do think that is significant, and I definitely think that attitude um, would be and sometimes still is um, gendered in really destructive ways. Are we ready to uh, move on to the final segment now? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, so, as always here at the CFP, our third and final segment is our passing on segment where we recommend uh, things we think you should read, watch, listen to um, that we like and we think are cool. Josh, start us off. Well, this is kind of silly and only kind of tangentially related to what we were talking about, but um, I'll have a couple links in the show notes for you of Jerry Seinfeld's recent appearance on uh, uh, Stephen with Stephen Colbert, uh, where they were talking about uh, Bill Cosby came up, and um, of course there was a lot, you know, just as we were talking just a moment ago about the abuse of women and stuff, and, and then with within this movie, the idea that you know, maybe the abuse or the suffering doesn't matter as long as, you know, great art comes out of it and that will live on and that will be what's in our memories. Um, it, it connected in my head. I don't know if it connects in anybody else's head, but um, so anyway, Jerry Seinfeld and, and Stephen Colbert were, were just discussing uh, Bill Cosby and whether they could still listen to his old albums and still uh, find the humor in them or not. And uh I'd encourage everybody to watch both parts. I just found it to be an interesting conversation, and Jerry actually changes his opinion halfway through, uh, which I, I found very interesting too. So that's my passing on. Can you separate the concerto from the, you know, from the phantom? Uh, an interesting and um, unfortunately all too continually relevant question. Um, I, I think we're gonna we're gonna keep asking ourselves that question. Um, you know, can can none of us watch uh, Miramax movies anymore? Um, le- like maybe we're uh, we're supposed to be not watching Polanski films or Allen films or yeah, I don't know. It, it never ends. Um, and and certainly we should we should keep asking ourselves those tough questions. Uh, Thanks, Josh, for that recommendation. Elizabeth, what do you have for us? Um, Well, this probably won't be surprising, but um, I would actually uh, recommend the um, original book, uh, especially if you're interested in how uh, this movie and the Weber version, all those different versions interconnect. I think the book provides a really interesting, you know, stepping off point, and it it kind of it really helps tie everything together, even when, you know, the the movies are are as diverse as they are, and you know, are trying to say such different things. I think a lot of that can be seen rooted in different sections of the book. So if anyone's interested, it I think it's a really 
interesting read. Great, thanks. Um, and I, I would I would second that. Um, the the book is is a really um, obviously compelling story because so many um, so many versions of it keep being made. So my recommendation is um, a a short documentary. It's about twenty five minutes, and it. Um, was first a university project um, and has since, I think, become a funded film. I found it on YouTube and it's um, this young woman creates a documentary comparing five or six um, different versions of Phantom of the Opera and does a sort of new historicist reading that ultimately argues that each version serves to tell you about the time period in which it was written or produced um, on three points. On the role of women, the social position of people with disabilities in society, and uh, the ultimate goal of the criminal justice system. Um, So all of those things are obviously really big uh, themes in the Phantom story, though we didn't touch on all of them here. Um, and because it is a school project, there are some historical oversimplifications. Um, there are a couple of times I kind of made faces at the video because there there are some some really broad statements. But um, as as a school project that covers um, five or six time periods in 25 minutes, um, I, I thought there was a lot of really interesting stuff there. So um, if if that new historicist perspective sounds like something that's up your alley, check that video out. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to drop us a line and say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and all our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern and sometimes wonderful guest. For Elizabeth Brimner and Josh altman Chauffer, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the Netflix original series Stranger Things. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.